Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. I think I made Jim a little nervous when he asked for my text, and I said, can we put it in the King James? Um, But I have a reason for that, and that is, of all the English translations we still currently use, uh, the King James is the one that was um, designed to be read out loud. So word choices, phrasing um, in the King James are sometimes different because language is different, um, sometimes different because of scholarly decisions, but sometimes different because uh, the people back then who would be using that Bible, most of them could not read, and so the Bible was translated to be read to them. Um, And since I'm reading this to you, and we'll be talking a little bit about kind of how words fit together, I thought I'd start there. It's on page eight. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his hosts. Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. He hath also established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and vapors, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven." He also exalted the horn of his people and the praise of all his saints, even of the children of Israel, a people near unto him. Praise ye the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the words you give us. We thank you that we can reach back through the ages and find meaning in them today. We can enjoy them today. We can find you present in them. We pray for our next few minutes together that you will help us to understand uh, the Psalms a little bit better, understand what uh, the the poets of old were accomplishing that we could enjoy. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today we're talking um, about poetry. So I really am going to read Shakespeare in case you thought that was a joke. and I wanted to take this opportunity. When, when Jim asked if we, we could preach, I said, yeah, I'd like to preach. And then he said, we're going through the Psalms. And um, I have to be honest, Psalms is not one of my favorite books of the Bible. And so I was thinking through, what can, what can we talk about in the Psalms um, that, that gets me excited? And the other problem with the Psalms is there's 150 of them. So it's really hard to be like, we're going to preach through the Psalms. Pick one. And, and that's, so that's a difficult thing, and there's a lot of great psalms to pick. So I thought, well, what I'd like to do is take a look at a psalm 
and connect it back to this idea of poetry and how poetry as an art form um, helps us to experience God in our daily lives. And I still had to pick a psalm, though. Uh, so I picked Psalm 148 because it has some of the elements of poetry that I want to talk through. And we're going we're gonna to spend time in three places. One is, what is poetry? And what does it do for us, whether it's secular or sacred poetry? We're going to spend some time talking about specifically the spiritual benefits of poetry. Um, and again, some of that is even, even for secular poetry, um, but specifically sacred poetry. And then we'll talk a little bit on the practical side of how do we engage with poetry um, that's a little different, hopefully, than our traditional way of, of trying to, to dissect it. And there's a danger when you start talking through, um, when you start assigning labels and, and attaching um, definitions and that sort of thing, and I compare it to um, looking at butterflies. You see a butterfly flying around, and it's beautiful, and you want to look at it, you want to watch it. And at some point, you might want to understand a little bit more about how this thing is functioning. And so there's a whole direction of study of butterflies where you're going to capture the butterfly, you're going to stick a pin through it, and you're going to pin it to a cork board, and you're going to give it its little label, and then you're going to find other butterflies that look like it, and you're going to pin them to cork boards, and over time, you come up with a lovely collection of dead butterflies. And there is value in that, so I'm not saying that we should never do that. But I'm not trying to do that today. I'm trying to talk a little bit about the essence and the form and the function of poetry without killing it. So forgive me if I go a little too far. I don't want to squish a butterfly here, um, but I do want to try to pull it down and take a look at it and understand what is it that makes something a poem versus a story or a narrative or a collection of words, what we call prose. And at the core, Poetry is, is a language sculpture. It's specifically language that is arranged in such a way that it's trying to provoke emotion. And so if you're reading something and, the, and one of the main objectives of that thing is to instill an emotion in you, um, very likely it's poetry. Now you say, well, wait a minute, there's a lot of prose out there that also instills emotion. I say, yes, there is, and we have a word for that kind of prose. It's poetic. We say, oh, this is poetic. Um, it's prose that has elements of poetry. So what are some of those elements of poetry that instill, how does, how does poetry combine words and combine language in such a way that it provokes an emotion? And, and then we're going to look at how some of those things play out in Psalm 148. Uh, well, you have structure and symbolism are kind of the basic two things. Um, the structure can be a number of things. Uh, most of us think of a poem, we think of, hey, it rhymes. Um, not all poems rhyme. We think of poem, we think, okay, there's a rhythm to that poem. Not all poems have rhythm. But most of them have some elements of rhythm or rhyme. Sometimes it's tighter, sometimes it's looser. We're going to look at some examples of that. And so that's kind of the structure of the language. The words are attached to each other in such a way that, like I said, it kind of creates a sculpture. Um, but then symbolism is the other piece. And symbolism can take a couple different form forms in poetry. Um, it's the poem is referring to other things. Some of those things are in the poem, so you see some repetition in poems. That's a form of kind of reference. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about something, I'm referring back to that same thing. We saw that in the psalm, and I'll, again, I'm going to read it in a, in a, again in a minute, but praise ye him, praise ye him, praise ye him. 
So you have, you have the poem referring to things in itself. We have the poem referring to other things. Uh, allusion, allegory, metaphor, simile, the whole list of things that poems drop in. And most poems have something in them that are actually describing something from a completely different place. And there's some of that in Psalm 148 as well. And then as a rule, poems are very efficient. Uh, they're not all efficient. If you've read Leaves of Grass, um, first of all, if you say, like, who's read Leaves of Grass? Whoever puts their hand up, I'm, most of you I'm going to accuse of, of lying to me, because most of you are not reading Leaves of Grass. But some people have. Um, and there's parts of Leaves of Grass that are they're very, um, that all of us have probably read or heard of. And uh, that's, that's an example of a poem that's not short. There's no efficiency to Leaves of Grass, and that's part of the style of it as well. But most poems are trying to say a lot in a very small bit of words. Um, and so an example of it, I'm going to read a couple examples of just secular poetry, and then we're going to go back to Psalm 148 and talk a little bit more about that. Um, but I have, um, I have a sonnet, Sonnet 118. Uh, this will sound familiar to most of you. If it doesn't, that's okay. Um, but let me read it as best I can. I, um, don't have the great inflection and vocal baritonage of people who are good at reading poetry, but I'm going to do the best I can. Uh, Sonnet 118. This is from Shakespeare. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. All right, so you have to read that a few times which I've done over the past few days to make sure I'm getting it. I still, a couple lines in there I'm still a little unsure about. Uh, the beauty of poetry is they still sound good, even if I'm not quite sure what they mean, so I can still enjoy them in that emotional sense. Um, I tried to put this paraphrase. I could compare you to summer, but summer has lots of problems, and it goes away. You, however, are perfect, and our love makes you eternal. And that's nice, but I think Shakespeare said it better. And so we see that in poetry. We see poetry kind of taking ideas, taking big ideas, almost always, and massaging them into ways that seem to pack that emotional punch so that we can enjoy them even if we're not fully in, ensconced in their meaning. And I was sitting at the pool the other day. I love it when our pool opens. Um, there's something about water that's poetic, by the way. So anytime you get a chance to like, just sit near water, um, life uh, tends to get better. So I was sitting there, and, and I'm reading a book, and I hear this chant coming from the pool, ring around the rosy, pocket full of posy, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And I was a little nervous because the kids were in the pool, and I'm like, how far are they falling down? I hope they're coming back up. Um, and that poem caught my attention because, because I sang it when I was a kid, and probably most of you sang it when you were a kid. And now the kids, and I'm like, why are kids still singing this poem? I mean, there's been a lot of stuff written, a lot of other things that kids, like kids aren't still, you know, watching, you know, various movies that I saw when I was a kid. Um, I mean, some of them they still are. But it's like, what is it about these lines 
And of course, you know, it has deep spiritual significance to the lines, right? No. Like, I was, I was, looking, at, I was looking through it in preparation uh, for, this, for this message. Nobody really knows what that means. There's some connection. Oh, it's about the, pl- the bubonic plague, and you have the little ring of, like, red ring on your skin, and ashes, and you fall over dead. So maybe it's about kids, you know, making sense of death, or maybe it's about a human condition um, learning to live with our own mortality. Uh, but then when you go back, this like, the, the actual phrases that we use don't go back that far. They, the words have changed over the years. Um, but what seems to always be the same is that children are dancing in a ring and either falling over or curtsying or stopping. Sometimes it's a little game where the last person to fall over has to go in the middle. Um, sometimes they have to curtsy, and that's just kind of you do it again. Um, so it's not, it's not the meaning of the poem the meaning of the lines that give it its significance. The meaning, we're not even sure what the meaning is. Um, And yet, there's something in it that carries through the generations. And what is it? I don't know. But there's lots of things like that that kind of attach to us. Poems attach to us more than we can attach to them. And so, I have an example of that too. And there's, um, there was a poet who lived in the 1800s, the mid-1800s is when he, he did his writing, and his name's Edward Lear. And Edward Lear is famous for nonsense poems, and he writes poems that are, I don't want to say they're difficult to understand, because they're very easy to understand. They'd be difficult to try to figure out, like, what's the hidden meaning? Because Edward Lear wasn't trying to create a hidden meaning. Edward Lear was trying to create a series of sounds that you could enjoy saying together, and little word pictures in there that would be interesting for you. I'm going to read it. I will caution you that, that um, modern slang has sort of um, ingressed into Edward Lear, so he wasn't familiar with all the slang we use today. So I'm just going to read this as written. Um, but listen for the little word pictures, and listen for the flow and the, um, I'm going to say rhythm, but just listen for the way the words kind of bounce around. The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money, wrapped up in a five-pound note. The owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar, Oh, lovely pussy, oh, pussy, my love, what a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are. What a beautiful pussy you are. Pussy said to the owl, you elegant fowl, how charmingly sweet you sing. Oh, let us be married, too long we have tarried, but what shall we do for a ring? They sailed away for a year and a day to the land where the bong tree rose. And there in a wood, a piggy wig stood with a ring at the end of his nose, his nose, his nose, with a ring at the end of his nose. Dear pig, are you willing to sell for one shilling your ring? Said the piggy, I will. So they took it away and were married next day by the turkey who lives on the hill. They dined on mints and slices of quince, which they ate with a runcible spoon. And hand in hand on the edge of the sand, they danced by the light of the moon, the moon, the moon, they danced by the light of the moon. There's a poem. I've been trying to figure out what is a runcible spoon. They ate this with a runcible spoon. And as near as I can tell, a runcible spoon is a spoon that sounds good in the poem. <laughs> and, and Edward Lear was elevated that to an art form. And if you want to look at a prose version of that, Alice in Wonderland is sort of the, the story version of just a little bit of nonsense, a lot of nonsense mixed in with a little bit of logic, little twirls that you kind of wander through. Um, but the, at the end of it, you, 
enjoy yourself and you, you have an emotional experience that connects you to the author and what the author was trying to convey. But both of those examples are um, very structured. So a Shakespearean sonnet is sort, of, is, is sort of the quintessential structured poem. It's got 14 lines. It has a very specific rhyme scheme where certain rhymes have to line with other rhymes, um, except for the last two rhymes, with rhyme with, which rhyme with each other and no other lines. Um, and they have, generally speaking, a very specific rhythm where you have accents on very certain syllables and every line has to match those same things. And so Shakespeare, as part of his genius, was finding ways that words could still flow in sentences, but they fit these very specific structural requirements. And, and, he, and, and as in, in the best sense, as you read it, you sort of lose track of those, but they still sort of impact your brain as you're reading through it. And Edward Lear does the same thing. He's got sort of a sing-songy rhythm, and he has rhymes that work. Now, Edward Lear starts to introduce little rhymes in the middle of lines. Um, Dear pig, are you willing to sell for one shilling your ring? Said the piggy, I will. And, and so that's, it's like the, the ends still rhyme, but the middles start to jumble, and it kind of um, is like a little tongue twister for you. And so it's not, so that you can do the, the elements of poetry, the rhythm, the reference, um, the rhyme, with, it can be very highly structured, or it can be very loosely structured, and I'm going to read an example of that, and then I'll probably go back to Psalms, because at some point um, I should pay more attention to the Bible during this message. Here's my final secular poem, and see if you can find, like, the, the, the connection between this and, and Shakespeare. We are outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. We got to make an all-out stand. Hey, yo, I'm going to need a right-hand man. Can I be real for a second, for just a millisecond? Let down my guard and tell the people how I feel a second. Now I'm the model of a modern major general, the venerated Virginia veteran whose men are all lining up to put me on a pedestal, writing letters to relatives, embellishing my elegance and eloquence. But the elephant is in the room. The truth is in your face when you hear the British cannons go boom. Any hope of success is fleeting. How can I keep leading when the people I'm leading keep retreating? We put a stop to the bleeding as the British take Brooklyn. Night takes rook, but look, we are outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. We gotta make an all-out stand. Hey, I'm gonna need a right-hand man. Hamilton, George Washington. And this is a fun one to me because you have all of the little, first of all, there's, very, there's not really lines the way we think about them. The rhymes are popped in everywhere. The rhythm keeps kind of changing on you, but there is a rhythm through the whole thing. And it enhances the enjoyment of you uh, being introduced to, to George Washington. And you have some of these references. One of my favorite lines in here is, I'm the model of a modern major general, which is a little wave uh, to Gilbert and Sullivan, who had a whole song about modern major general, which is sort of you know, the opposite of what George Washington was trying to be. Um, and then he's got a chess reference here, Night Takes Rook. Uh, which sounds like, oh, it's a great little rhyme, but, it, but the knight is the weaker piece than the rook. And so knight takes rook is a, re a reference to any time the American army won a battlefield victory over the British, it was sort of like the, the knight taking the rook in chess. And so you've got all the elements of poetry, but they're sort of just kind of thrown on a plate and, um, and just for you to listen to and try to keep up with. And most of the time, you're not going to catch it all the first time through. And so these are ways that even when you have secular poems, um, you have an emotional um, message that the poet is trying to convey. So let's go back to Psalms, because I'm going to read the psalm again, and I want you to listen for rhythm, rhyme, references, allusions to other things. 
Um, and what is the emotional message that the psalmist is trying to convey in the way that he's combined these words? Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his hosts. Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. He hath established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons, and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and vapors, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heavens. He also exalteth the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, even the children of Israel, a people near unto him. Praise ye the Lord. So you have that rhythm of praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord. And you have the rhythm of he, he, ha, he, he talks in pairs. Um, praise him the angels, praise him the host, praise him the sun, the moon, and now we have a triplet, and the stars of light. Um, he goes, as he gets further, praise him ye dragons and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and vapors. These are, all these pairs are things that are similar but different. Right? They, have, they have elements in common, but they are, they are different things. So over the course of the poem, the psalmist is describing a range. He's expanding the range of things that should be praising the Lord. But there's another reference in here that I find fascinating, and that is the order of these go roughly in the order of creation. So if you're familiar with the creation story, the, the psalmist is sort of guiding you through, and he actually makes a reference to God created these things, therefore they should praise him. But the, but the order, now it's not exact. If we go back to Genesis, we'll find a couple things. Oh, this, this came before this, whatever. But he starts with angels and heavenly hosts. And then he goes to uh, sun, moon, and stars. And then he goes to waters, um, specifically talking about waters in the, in the sky, waters above the sky. Um, then he gets to verse 7. Another reason I, put the, I wanted the King James in here is because verse 7 says, dragons, praise the Lord from the earth, dragons and all deeps. A lot of other uh, translations talk about um, uh, water creatures or ocean creatures or large creatures. And I thought, well, dragons has more of an emotional punch than those other ones. Um, and so I like it better. And since I got to pick. Uh, beasts and cattle, creeping things, flying fowl. And then, so he's going through the natural kingdom, living things in the natural kingdom, roughly in the order they were created, and then he gets to the kingdom of man and starts going through those. And then he gets to the very end to Israel specifically, uh, which came after all of those things. And so you have that same, that rhythm, that um, you don't have rhyme. Now, because one of the big handicaps we have when we're looking through the Psalms is they were written in Hebrew. And uh, most of us don't know Hebrew. And so we're, we rely on people who do know Hebrew to go into the Psalms, figure out what's the best way to arrange these words in English so that we can capture some of the same uh, value or some of the same message that the psalmist meant for. And there's different ways to do that. Um, because you can read um, 
you know, Dante's Inferno is, is, a, is a poem that has been translated a bunch of times. And when you go back through and you look at what are, what's the best translation of Dante's Inferno, you get different answers. Because there's three, at least, three different ways to translate Dante's Inferno. One of them is I want to capture, um, I want to ca capture it as directly as I can. I want to go from Italian to English, and I want all the words to match as best they can. Um, and there's value in having a super accurate translation of word for word Dante's Inferno. But you know what? That's not going to have any rhythm to it, and it's not going to have any rhyme to it. But it's going to have the same meaning, the same original meaning that Dante put in. Or you can say, well, it's a poem. I want to write it. I want to translate it as a poem. And I want to have, uh, you know, the interlocking rhyme scheme that Dante had, and I want to have the rhymes, and I want to try to get the meter um, exactly right. And so you have translations of Dante's Inferno that focused on the, on the poem aspect of it but they're not as accurate because some of the words, they, they had to use different words or different ideas a little bit so that they could capture the poetry of Dante's Inferno. But then you'd have a whole third category where Dante's Inferno is actually a story of a journey through hell. And a journey through hell should be terrifying. And in Italian, they tell me, it's terrifying. So how can we capture the emotions that Dante had? How can we capture the pathos and the fear and the grotesqueness of Dante's journey through hell, it would require a whole different translation than either of the other two. And then you might have a fourth way. It's like, I'm going to try to balance all three of those things and come up with something that maybe doesn't, is, maybe it's not the most accurate, maybe it's not the most poetic, maybe it's not the most um, uh, descriptive or emotive, but it's going to try to balance all those three things so that you don't need to read three translations, you can just read this one. And so people have taken different, and that's what we see in the Psalms. We see in the Psalms those at least, like I said, it's at least three different ways of translating things. Um, and I'm going to do something that I probably never do in another sermon, but bear with me. I'm going to read from the message. Um, I'm not a big fan of the message um, for various reasons, but it's not the worst. And when you get to things like poetry, um, the guy who did the message was himself a poet. And he, he really took an eye towards how can I create an emotive, poetic uh, reading of the entire Bible, but especially the Psalms is where I think it really comes into zone. So, so I'm going to read a couple. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but I'm going to read a little bit from here's how the King James does it, and here's how the, uh, the message does it. Uh, starting in verse 7, um, actually, we'll start, we'll, we'll read the first few verses. Uh, Hallelujah! Praise God from heaven. Praise Him from the mountaintops. Praise Him, all you His angels. Praise Him, all you His warriors. Right there, we have a different, more impactful um, reading of some of those words instead of, one of my favorites is instead of heights, mountaintops, right? Mountaintops has a different reading than heights. Um, especially around here, it's like, oh, we got Haddon Heights right over there. It's like, it's nice, but it's not like grandeur. But mountaintops, grandeur. Um, instead of hosts, he uses the term warriors, which is actually a, a more, um, is more in context because usually in the Old Testament when you see the word hosts, it actually means armies. Um, so he's using the word warriors. When we get, he also says dragons. When we get down to verse 7, um, he says, Praise God from earth, you sea dragons, you fathomless ocean depths, fire and hail, snow and ice, hurricanes obeying his orders. That verse 7 and 8 there, a little bit more punch to the language. He talks about sea dragons, but he says fathomless ocean depths, which has a nice little rhythm to it, um, instead of all you deeps. And he, and he personifies, instead of saying, um, praise him, you dragons and all depths, he says, you sea dragons, you fathomless ocean deeps, 
more like he's talking to the ocean itself. Um, and, he, and so he goes through here, and he, he just does a different way of converting the Hebrew into English that I think has value um, in addition to the normal ways. And then we can look at the New American Standard Version, which I'm not going to get into, but, but tends to be a more accurate, like word for word. Each word is, is attached to the word before it in a, in, a, in a more literal translation. So if you're trying to understand maybe some of the nuance, that's another, um, another way to go. So, so let, me, let me give you three, w- three ways to think about as we go through the Psalms or other sacred poetry, what is it that we're, what, what's a way for us to engage with it beyond just, I'm going to read it, I'm going to kind of wonder what it means, and I'm, then I'm going to read the next one. And I'm going to give you a metaphor um, that I got from C.S. Lewis, and I'm just going to tell you right now, like none of the stuff I'm talking about today are like ideas that I came up with. They're all things that I like grabbed from other people, so hopefully the order of them um, is, is, uh, is my own, and, and it's also the least valuable part of what I'm saying. But all the different things I'm, I'm, I'm taking from other people and C.S. Lewis had a great metaphor for how to look at um, poetry. He was actually thinking more about, about literature in general, but it really works for poetry. And he, he wrote an essay describing himself in a tool shed. He said, I'm in a tool shed, and there's a crack, uh, like, a, a, like a knot hole in the wall, and light is coming through. So there's a beam of light coming through the tool shed. And there are three levels at which you can engage with this beam of light. One, the first level is that the beam of light illuminates elements of the tool shed, and so you can see the tools you need to get. You can see, oh, do I need to straighten them up? Do I need to clean? So you can, the beam of light has a utilitarian function that now there's light in the shed, and I can work in here and do the things that I need to do. And that's sort of the, the bottom level. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it, but, but it's also you're, you're missing a lot if that's how you're engaging, of just like, let's, let's use this for what it can do for me. Uh, the second way that you could use the beam of light is the beam of light in a dark space is in and of itself, um, it's beautiful. And so we can engage with it as a thing of beauty. There's little dust particles in the beam of light. They seem to be floating. Um, there's different, it creates shadows and, and um, depth to the things that I'm looking at. And so I can enjoy that as its own beautiful thing. Um, but then there's the third way to engage with that beam of light, which is sort of that, that highest level, and this is what I want to encourage as we look at the Psalms, is the beam of light, you follow it. You follow it to the knothole, and you look out, and you see the big wide world that is outside the tool shed. And that's, that's really the highest value of the Psalms, is the Psalms, they do, there, there are things in the Psalms that comfort us emotionally and comfort us spiritually and, and tell us things that, that are about God, tell us things about our lives, and they're valuable and good things. Um, and there's things about the Psalms that are beautiful and wonderful to look at and to read and to, to digest. But the highest value of the Psalms is it's a keyhole through which we can look and we can see a God of creation. And when you read this Psalm again, Psalm 148, again, that's what you see. you see. You see how God thinks about his creation. The, the poem that I put in the, um, the poem that I put in the worship bulletin was actually only, only part of a poem um, by Wendell Berry, who was a great, uh, he was a poet, he was an essayist, he was a farmer, um, and he was a cultural critic. He had, he had great, very interesting things to say. Um, and he would take uh, walks 
uh, Sabbath walks, and he would write poems during his Sabbath walks. So he just had this catalog of poems that he wrote while he was walking uh, during his Sabbath walks. And, and I have an excerpt from one of them in there, and he talks about, um, you can read it, I'm not going to go through it all, um, but he just talks about being in a misty wood and how the sky, because of the mist, the sky looks like it starts at the ground and you can't see where it just goes up and the trees are going up with the sky and, and it just feels like this eternal moment. And he's watching the leaves fall and he realizes that, that he can take uh, joy in those leaves falling because God takes joy in the smallest bit of his creation. So he's got this wonderful poem. Well, then another guy came along, Malcolm Geit, who is another poet and essayist, and he was walking with his dogs, um, I think on a Sabbath, and he saw a leaf falling. And it reminded him of one of Wendell Berry's poems. And he said in that moment, he felt this connection to Wendell Berry because he was, they were looking at the same thing. And he said it helped him focus and clarify his own experience. So having read Wendell Berry, and then walking through and experiencing something, it, it gave that experience greater meaning. And that's what I ask you to look at the Psalms for. As we read through the Psalms, you're going to read them, and they're not always going to have an immediate, this is what it means for you today. This is how it can help you get through. Sometimes that's there, and I'm not going to criticize that. But that's not always what they're for. The question is, can you ingest enough of the Psalms, enough of how God describes his creation, how God describes the relationships so that when you are going through experiences down the road, there is some little piece of the psalm, some little piece of God's voice that, I'm going to mix my, taps you on the shoulder, that's not right, whispers in your ear. It's a little piece of God's voice that whispers in your ear and helps focus and clarify something that you're going through in that moment. And, and that's the window, that's the window that, I, that, that sacred poetry gives us in, into the world of our maker. Let's pray. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.